0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, I talked about the 2007 Urban Challenge as the autonomous car competition that DARPA held And they were specifically trying to spur on innovation in driverless car technology. One of the elements I didn't really talk about was how cooperative the experience was. I mentioned that there was sort of this air of cooperation. And I talked about how Dave Hall had created a LiDAR tool that ended up being used by lots of the teams. But it went well beyond that. Teams were eager to share their approaches and their technologies with each other, the algorithms they were using for decision-making processes, there was a lot of excitement as these different very intelligent groups of people got together and began to cross-pollinate their ideas. The real goal wasn't necessarily to beat out everyone else, although, of course, everyone would have liked to have been on the winning team. But really, the the real goal was to overcome this huge engineering challenge of developing technologies that would be necessary for a car to maneuver through an urban environment safely under its own power, following all applicable traffic laws and integrating with human-driven vehicles in that space. Some people, like Sebastian Thrun of Stanford Racing Team, would say that the greatest achievement to come out of the challenges wasn't winning top prize. It was when teams would share their knowledge and their experience with one another, allowing separate lines of research and development to start to converge. And it set the ground for what would come next. Now, the challenges in 2004, 2005, and 2007 proved that autonomous cars could exist on some level. And a lot of the technology that went into making cars navigate and operate independently would go into other systems and other applications. Stuff like various driver assist technologies like lane detection or automatic braking. And it also encouraged some big companies to continue supporting efforts to making driverless cars a reality. So one thing to acknowledge is, even if we were to say we're never going to be at a time where truly autonomous cars ones that could take us from any starting location to any any ending location that's connected by roads to our starting point. Even if we say that's never going to be possible, not truly 100% reliable, what we can say is we've already seen numerous technologies that were spawned by these competitions that are not only going into cars today, but are saving lives in the process. So... That's, a, that's already a great uh, outcome to this DARPA challenge, even if you, you know, again, agree that ultimately this was to make more uh, more automated military ground combat vehicles. And even in that case, that was intended to help save soldiers' lives. So that's a noble endeavor as well. But let's talk about some of the companies and organizations that formed in the wake of these grand challenges. You had General Motors and Carnegie Mellon University get together. They launched a research and development program called the Autonomous Driving Collaborative Research Lab. Then you also had Volkswagen establish a similar effort with Stanford University. Now, those academic research programs didn't receive nearly as much public attention as the other really big entity that got involved in the field not long after the challenges. And that would be Google later known as Alphabet uh, or Waymo. So Alphabet's the parent company. It's the holding company under which uh, the smaller companies, and smaller by smaller I just mean hierarchically, uh, would spin off. So you have like Google, which continues to focus on the core business of the overall company, but you have these other subsidiaries that are subsidiaries of Alphabet, not of Google. Anyway, one of those would be a division that was specifically – in research and development in the area of autonomous cars. So in 2007, Sebastian Thrun took a sabbatical from being a professor at Stanford to go work at Google for a short while. Turned out to be longer than a short while, but he and a team were hired on essentially to help develop Google's Street View tool. That's the tool that's integrated into various maps uh, systems that Google does and allows you to take a street-level look at different locations. It was done by driving special cars outfitted with special cameras through all these different streets and all these different locations. They had about a year uh, scheduled to try and map out all the roads they could in various major cities, and they ended up doing it in nine months, so it was pretty impressive. Anyway, that project has had plenty of news coverage, not just because of its utility but also because of concerns about privacy and security. Not everyone is super crazy about the idea of using an online tool to virtually coast down streets and take a look at different addresses. Not to mention possibly spying people that you recognize in places they should not be. But that's a topic for another time. In 2009, Google would go a step further and secretly began testing autonomous vehicles. So they had been in development of that for a couple of years as well, and Sebastian Theron had worked on that. They were uh, retrofitting Toyota Prius cars at first, and the goal was to conduct 10 100-mile trips in those cars without interruption, so uninterrupted 100-mile trips with uh, Toyota Priuses 10 times. Over the course of 2009, Google would rack up more autonomously driven miles than had been accumulated over all previous years of experimentation among all autonomous car programs. So in one year, they eclipsed everything that had come before it. In 2010, Sebastian Thrawn would officially join Google as a Google Fellow and found a secret research and development division within the company called Google X. Now, among the many projects that division would focus on, the autonomous cars was just one, uh, would be the self-driving cars. And Thrun, having participated in all three of the DARPA challenges, had really deep contacts in that field, and he could call upon them to help solve difficult problems that remained in pursuit of the goal of a truly autonomous car that could interoperate with human society. So Thrun ended up hiring people from the various competing teams of the DARPA challenges to join him at Google in developing further autonomous car technologies. Technically, the company had been doing this since 2007, really. Dave Hall, the guy who souped up LiDAR to make it an indispensable tool, became a billionaire through his work at Velodyne in the meantime. And Red Whitaker over at Carnegie Mellon, would continue teaching at that university, effectively training the next generation of roboticists. And computer scientists throughout the entire industry were continuing to develop machine learning strategies that would become useful in multiple applications, including teaching a car how to drive itself. Uh, there were numerous groups that thought this is the real secret to developing a truly autonomous car is through machine learning, not programming a car on what to do in any given situation, but teaching a car, sort of akin to how you would teach a young driver about how to conduct him or herself in a car. By this stage, Google's tests had drawn attention from the press. The New York Times published a piece in October 2010 titled, Google Cars Drive Themselves in Traffic. The article revealed that Google had been conducting tests in plain sight for several months, but at that point had not commented on what those tests were all about, and the company was pretty content with people just assuming that it was another Google Street View car. There were 15 engineers working on the project, and they had hired a dozen or so drivers whose job it was to monitor the performance of the vehicles and to take over if necessary. The engineers testing the vehicles had three main ways that they could take control back from the car. Uh, in each test vehicle, engineers had installed a button, a nice candy-like red button that was on the right-hand side of the driver, so they could easily hit the button and that would switch controls to manual. But you could also do it if you tapped on the brakes or if you turned the steering wheel. The car would hand over a control to the driver. Google had a little hiccup in 2011, a public hiccup. That was when one of its driverless vehicles was involved in a low-speed car crash. And at the time, everyone assumed this was the first uh, in-real-world car crash with an autonomous car. However, this particular incident was only a very tiny hiccup because it soon became public, That the car, the autonomous car, was actually in manual control mode at the time. The human driver behind the wheel was responsible for the accident, not the driverless car technology. Google's driverless cars would maintain a perfect safety record in autonomous mode until 2016, publicly. Uh, That's assuming if you say perfect safety record in the sense that uh, the autonomous vehicle's were not found to be at fault. There were incidents where autonomous cars were involved in car accidents, but in every case until 2016, every public case, it was determined that the other driver was at fault. Again, stress on public. I'll get back to what I mean in just a few minutes. In 2012, Google began to expand its fleet of driverless cars. It added a Lexus RX 450h, to the mix so it wasn't just toyota priuses uh, they had a couple of others as well and the company began to develop its own sensors it began to replace the off-the-shelf kind of stuff it was buying i mean off the shelf if you know which shelves to look at it's still pretty exclusive materials but now the company was developing stuff in-house purpose-built for their own cars 2012 was also when a few Google employees were allowed to start testing this technology on highways around Google's campus. So it was outside of just the direct team working on the project. Now other Google employees could end up driving an autonomous car and allowing it to operate in an autonomous mode in specific regions and under specific sets of circumstances, Uh, There are a lot of different rules in place to participate in this, so you couldn't just turn it on autonomous and sit back all the time. And 2012 was when the state of Nevada made history by becoming the first state to license autonomous cars for use on state roads. California would follow suit that same year, but the bill that Governor Jerry Brown had signed would only take effect starting in 2015. In January 2013, Audi and Toyota both showed off autonomous vehicle concept designs at CES, so it showed that lots of uh, entities were still very much interested in driverless cars, not just Google. In 2014, Google unveiled a prototype electric car that had a top speed of 25 miles per hour. There was no steering wheel, no brake, no accelerator, no controls, to allow a human driver to actually take manual control of the car inside the car. The car did have some controls, but there were buttons that would tell it when it could go and when it should stop. So these vehicles were not intended for commercial use. They were part of Google's R&D to to test out the possibility of a vehicle that doesn't even have manual controls. Uh, It requires a lot of trust to be put into the system. Now, to be fair, these were very limited in their scope. A top speed of 25 miles per hour suggests that you would use them on, like, residential streets and stuff. You wouldn't use them on a highway. They wouldn't be able to get up to speed. In 2014, the state of California passed legislation requiring any company operating autonomous vehicles in the state to submit reports on any accident involving a vehicle operating in autonomous mode that would result in, quote, Damage of property or in bodily injury or death. End quote. After that point, Google would report several accidents, like more than three dozen. Most of those appeared to be the fault of human drivers, not the autonomous systems. But according to some Google executives, there were some accidents that happened between 2011 and when this piece of legislation was signed in 2014 that Google chose to keep quiet. And the logic that the company used was that, well, those accidents happened before that law was passed, so it doesn't really apply to those. We don't need to talk about accidents that have already happened. Just from this point forward, we'll talk about it. One of those accidents involved someone who had participated in two of the DARPA Grand Challenges, someone who was working for Google and who had become something of a thorn in the company's side. And that person... Was Anthony Lewandowski. I'll explain more in a second, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Lewandowski. If you listened to the previous episodes, he was the guy who competed using a a self-balancing motorcycle in the 2004 and 2005 Grand Challenge competitions. The name of that motorcycle, by the way, no big surprise, was Ghost Rider. He had joined Google in 2007 to work with Sebastian Thrun on the Google Street View project, and Lewandowski started a few companies related to autonomous cars. He had developed these technologies for Ghost Rider, and then he started some startups that were focused on specific elements that he had created for Ghost Rider, uh, including one that used spinning LiDAR as a sensing technology. He didn't invent that, but he did develop or start up a, a company that uh, specialized in that. Then he pushed Google to buy the tech his other companies happened to be making, which you might think is a little questionable. Lewandowski was in a position to market his own company's products for a project he was working on with Google. So he was in charge of hardware for autonomous cars over at Google. And then said, well, for us to outfit these cars, let's buy this tech from this, these two companies. Oh, I happen to own those two companies. So I'm using the money from the company I work for to funnel into companies I own. People begin to have questions about that. But it totally worked. As people at Google learned about what had gone on, they started to get a little concerned about this and about Lewandowski. Uh, It got worse when it became known that Lewandowski was talking to some competitors, some other companies outside of Google, about selling them the same technology. Now, this was complicated because he was operating those businesses outside of Google. He was a a business owner, and and those technically didn't belong to Google. But at the same time, he was working for Google. So it seemed like he might be undercutting Google or helping out their competitors, uh, which was complicated. Larry Page, the head of Google, essentially directed the company to acquire Lewandowski's businesses rather than risk him leaving the company to oversee the businesses himself. Lewandowski had indicated that he might leave Google in pursuit of leading up these these two companies that he had founded, Uh, although his commitment to that course of action is something that people have questioned, that perhaps he just said this as a way to encourage Larry Page to shell out millions and millions of dollars to acquire these companies. According to a report in The New Yorker, several people in Project Chauffeur, which was the the name, the code name for the driverless vehicle program at Google, felt that it was a mistake to get so tightly connected to Lewandowski. Several of the team members questioned his commitment to Google, as well as his ethical sensibilities, and this would get pushed further after an alleged incident in 2011. So here's how the story goes. There was a Google executive named Isaac Taylor, who was working on Project Chauffeur, and he took a leave of absence from the project. Uh, It was a paternity leave when he became a new father in 2011, when he got back to Google, he found out that Lewandowski had made some unauthorized changes to the software that guided the driverless cars. So, up to that point, Google had really placed some pretty tight restrictions on the routes that these driverless cars would be allowed to take in autonomous mode. This is a type of geofencing, where you restrict the operating parameters for a vehicle. The goal was to gather data through many miles of travel but to control that process by limiting where the cars could actually drive under autonomous mode. Lewandowski apparently felt this was not satisfactory, so he made changes to the code to let the autonomous cars drive on routes that previously had been forbidden. Taylor and Lewandowski had a rather spirited argument by all accounts over at Google And at that point, Lewandowski demanded that Taylor accompany him on a ride in an autonomous car to show that this was a good idea. So, according to the story, the two people left in a retrofitted Prius and then hit the California roads. Now, I'm going to quote the New Yorker piece directly here. This is from an article titled, Did Uber Steal Google's Intellectual Property? And it was written by Charles Duhigg. And it was published October 22nd, 2018. So you can... Find this, it's a very recent article, and here's uh, Charles Duig's description of this incident. The car went onto a freeway where it traveled past an on ramp. According to people with knowledge of events that day, the Prius accidentally boxed in another vehicle, a Camry. A human driver could easily have handled the situation by slowing down and letting the Camry merge into traffic, but Google's software wasn't prepared for this scenario. The cars continued speeding down the freeway, side by side. The Camry's driver jerked his car onto the right shoulder. Then, apparently trying to avoid a guardrail, he veered to the left. The Camry pinwheeled across the freeway and into the median. Lewandowski, who acted as the safety driver, swerved hard to avoid colliding with the Camry, causing Taylor to injure his spine so severely that he eventually required multiple surgeries. The Prius regained control and turned the corner on the freeway, leaving the Camry behind. Lewandowski and Taylor didn't know how badly damaged the Camry was. They didn't go back to check on the other driver or to see if anyone else had been hurt. Neither they nor other Google executives made inquiries with the authorities. The police were not informed that a self-driving algorithm had contributed to the accident. That's not a great story. I mean... It's written very well, no offense to the New Yorker or anything like that. I mean, it's not a great thing to have in your historical record, no matter who you are. And it's particularly bad for a company that used to have the motto, don't be evil. Now, Lewandowski would actually double down on the results of this incident. Rather than saying, whoops, my bad, I done did something terrible that caused... Uh, damage and possibly injury, certainly injury to his coworker, he ended up saying that the incident actually provided proof that there was work needed on the algorithms and that Google could learn from the mistake and that this was kind of that Silicon Valley philosophy of failure is good because you learn from failure. Okay. Well, the article from The New Yorker also states that there was at least one accident that happened while a driverless car was in autonomous mode that did not get reported uh, to to the, the police or to the press. According to the article, a car nicknamed Kit, after a uh, good old night Rider, was rear-ended at an intersection when the autonomous car braked suddenly after being unable to differentiate a yellow light from a red light. So they stopped short or stopped too suddenly. And the car behind them was unable to stop and ran into them. As for Lewandowski, he would stay at Google until 2016 when he'd leave in order to go found a new company called Otto, O-T-T-O. Otto would consult with Uber for their driverless car program. Google executives would allege that Lewandowski took proprietary information and trade secrets with him in this move. They had proof that he had... Uh, downloaded and transferred an enormous number of files, though there were questions about how valuable those files actually were, and Uber would ultimately fire Lewandowski as this case developed. The actual trial happened in early 2018, and it was marked with a lot of messy, complicated legal maneuvers on all sides. One day I may have to do a full episode just on that lawsuit and what came out of it, but we can skip to the end. Google's Waymo, because that's what they—that's what Project Chauffeur evolved into, was a subsidiary company called Waymo, would have ultimately settle out of court with Uber. All right, back to driverless cars. In 2016, the same year that Lewandowski would leave Google, we get to that publicly acknowledged accident that was the fault of Google's autonomous technology. So this was the first time that the public heard about a traffic accident that was quote-unquote caused by Google's driverless car tech. It happened at another intersection. No big surprise there. Here's the description from the incident report with the California Department of Motor Vehicles. And it goes like this. A Google Lexus model autonomous vehicle, Google AV, was traveling in autonomous mode eastbound on El Camino Real, in a real, I guess, in Mountain View, in the far right-hand lane approaching the Castro Street intersection. As the Google AV approached the intersection, it signaled its intent to make a right turn on red onto Castro Street. The Google AV then moved to the right-hand side of the lane to pass traffic in the same lane that was stopped at the intersection and proceeding straight, However, the Google AV had to come to a stop and go around sandbags positioned around a storm drain that was blocking its path. When the light turned green, traffic in the lane continued past the Google AV. After a few cars had passed, the Google AV began to proceed back into the center of the lane to pass the sandbags. A public transit bus was approaching from behind. The Google AV test driver saw the bus approaching in the left side mirror, but believed the bus would stop or slow to allow the Google AV to continue. Approximately three seconds later, as the Google AV was re-entering the center of the lane, it made contact with the side of the bus. The Google AV was operating in autonomous mode and traveling at less than two miles per hour, and the bus was traveling at about 15 miles per hour at the time of contact. The Google AV sustained body damage to the left front fender, to the left front wheel, and one of its driver's side sensors. There were no injuries reported at the scene. So in other words, this was a pretty minor crash, all things considered. And the report even managed to make it sound like, while Google would not dispute that this was the fault of the driverless car, there was still some shade to cast at the bus driver, who was quote-unquote expected to stop or slow down. So publicly, it sounded like driverless cars were doing really well around 2016, though in self-limited tests. We weren't seeing autonomous cars sent into unfamiliar territory at this point. And assuming the New Yorker article is accurate, and I have no reason to assume otherwise, there were at least several incidents that could have changed public perception about how safe those cars really were. They were just being kept on the hush-hush I've got more to say about Google and other companies and driverless cars in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. We'll come back to Google in a moment, but first, let's chat a little bit about some of the other companies that are pursuing driverless car technology. One of them I've already mentioned a couple of times, and that would be Uber. Now, at the 2014 re-slash code conference, the code conference is known as, uh, Travis Kalanick, who is the CEO and he w- or was the CEO and, and the co-founder of Uber, uh, talked about autonomous cars in a pretty ominous way, I would say. He said, quote, The reason Uber could be expensive is you're paying for the other dude in the car. When there is no other dude in the car, the cost of taking an Uber anywhere is cheaper, even on a road trip, end quote. And by dude in the car, Kalnik was talking about the driver. So here's a guy who is the head of a ride-hailing service, a company that employs thousands of drivers, saying, yeah, but man, can't you just imagine what the world would be like if we didn't have to pay those drivers? The message was that trips would cost less for customers. It would also mean that Uber would be able to keep more of the money. It wouldn't have to share any cash out to any employees, at least not any drivers. And it would put the company's own drivers out of work if such a future were to come true. It was more than a little harsh, I would say. I would call it demoralizing. If I were driving for Uber and I heard that the company's leadership was saying, I can't wait to replace you with a robot. It would make me feel not so great about my job. Kalanick also put forth an idea that frequently comes along with the concept of autonomous cars, which would be the end of private car ownership. Rather than purchasing a car, at least in a densely uh, populated environment, you would just use a driverless vehicle to take you places. The cost per trip could potentially be low enough that you would actually be saving money compared to Uh, purchasing your own car plus paying insurance and all that kind of stuff, not to mention maintenance and parking and that kind of thing. All of those payments would be gone. You would just be paying on a per-trip basis. And, in fact, a lot of the futures involving driverless cars, a lot of the future scenarios that various people project, assume that we're mostly going to be interacting with fleets owned by car-hailing services like Uber and Lyft. We won't own these driverless cars and these visions of the future, because why would we? We would just use a ride-hailing service. Again, this only makes sense if you're living in a fairly densely populated area, a city or a suburb. It makes less sense the further out from a city you live. But you could see it working at least in some scenarios. Uber's pursuit has made Plenty of headlines over the years, including some very grim ones. Uh, In March 2018, a woman crossing Mill Avenue in Tempe, Arizona, was struck by a self-driving Uber vehicle. It was actually in autonomous mode, and the woman died from her injuries. The car was a Volvo XC90 SUV. There were no passengers in the vehicle apart from the human operator, Uh, The human operator was supposed to act as emergency backup, but again, the car was in self-driving mode at the time of the accident. Uh, Google would go on to say that the driver was distracted and that uh, Google's system would have been able to respond appropriately in time, which may be true, but I'm not sure is the classiest thing to say in the wake of someone's death. Anyway, Uber would suspend all autonomous testing in Arizona, as well as in Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and Toronto in response. And uh, the state of Arizona would essentially really come down on Uber, and Uber would just completely pull the plug in Arizona, uh, for the time being anyway, as far as autonomous cars go. An investigation revealed that the possible cause of the accident was that the vehicle's emergency braking system had been disabled when in autonomous mode. Now, again, since that accident, Uber's pulled out of Arizona. They've also laid off some of the employees who are working in the autonomous car division. Uh, They have petitioned to renew testing in other cities, but, um, and they're not done. You know, even though they had a setback, they're not out of the driverless car business. They're still working toward developing a driverless car fleet. Uh, In fact, the company had ordered 24,000 self-driving Volvo SUVs which are scheduled to begin shipping in 2019. Toyota also announced it would invest a half a billion dollars in Uber. This was an addition to uh, a previously existing partnership between the two companies. And that Toyota was going to incorporate Uber self-driving technology into its CNM minivans for its own sort of a ride-sharing fleet service. Meanwhile, Lyft is also chasing after a self-driving autonomous fleet. Um, They made a partnership with General Motors, and GM has its own initiative for a self-driving fleet. That one's called Cruise. That one's scheduled to launch also in 2019. Ford also has plans for self-driving cars in a ride-sharing capacity. Like I said, that seems to be the, the big model, is the idea that these cars would be prohibitively expensive for most consumers. So it doesn't make a whole lot of business sense to build them out for your average private car owner. It makes more sense to build them out for a ride-sharing service where you will generate revenue over uh, a long-term as opposed to trying to sell them for a profit to a single person. Uh, Ford, however, uh, their timeline is a little more modest. They're looking at starting in 2021. Then there's Tesla and its autopilot feature, which I should add has been marketed as a driver assist feature. It has not been marketed as a truly autonomous vehicle option, or at least that's not the official corporate messaging. Uh, Tesla can get a little cheeky with the way they message stuff out, but all the official use cases state that as a driver, you're supposed to keep your hands on the wheel At all times, you're not supposed to give up control. Uh, You can allow it to take over, but you aren't to just sit back and watch it happen, which of course has not stopped people from doing just that thing, despite the fact that the company has said, don't do that thing. The company initially rolled out the autopilot feature as a software update, which is actually really cool. The idea of rolling out a software update and sending it out to cars, and suddenly they have this autopilot feature. That's really neat. That's something that you wouldn't have seen, you know, five years ago with cars. So that happened back in 2015. So I guess you'd see it three years ago, but not five years ago. But this semi-autonomous system has been involved in at least two fatal car crashes over the last few years. The first happened in 2016 when a Tesla car in autopilot mode collided with a truck that was turning across the path of traffic. The uh, Tesla failed to detect the truck was there and was unable to stop in time. The second fatal accident happened in 2018 when a Tesla vehicle in autopilot collided with a concrete highway lane divider at high speed. Then we get back to Waymo, that spinoff from Google, that's probably the most famous of all the autonomous vehicle projects. According to the company, its test vehicles have driven more than 10 million miles in autonomous mode. Though, to Lewandowski's point, some consideration should be dedicated to the fact that many of those miles were over very specific routes. So, yes, millions of miles traveled, but if they are millions of the same miles, that has limited utility. In December 2018, Waymo is launching, or perhaps has already launched, depending on when you hear this, a self driving service available to people who have opted into the company's Early Rider program. And the service is in Phoenix, Arizona, which I assume is a delicate matter in the wake of the tragedy that happened in Tempe, Arizona in spring of 2018 with that Uber crash. The service is called Waymo One. And like other ride hailing services, customers will use an app to hail a car. They will designate where they want to be picked up, where they want to be dropped off. Uh, The cost of the ride will be dependent upon factors like what time of day it is and how far away the trip uh, or how, how much distance the trip will take. The cars are Chrysler Pacifica minivans. And they do have some controls on the inside for passengers uh, to use in various situations. There's a button that can initiate essentially an emergency pullover. So you can have the car pull over at any point during the ride. Uh, there's also a contact support button that will put a passenger in, uh, in contact with customer support. Uh, so it sounds like 2019 is going to be a really big and potentially scary experiment to see if autonomous cars are really ready to enter into real service, at least in limited markets. And it may well be that the results we'll see will show these vehicles are more safe, reliable, and efficient than vehicles that are operated by human drivers. But if there are more accidents or evidence of companies trying to cover up accidents, that's going to be a big problem. It also shows how there's a huge disconnect between that Silicon Valley philosophy of fail big, fail fast, fail often. Making risky decisions in Silicon Valley is considered to be a really good trait, not a bad one. Being risk-averse is a bad trait in Silicon Valley. It's better to keep throwing yourself out there as hard as you can Without any fear of failure, because if you do succeed, you're going to reap incredible benefits. And if you fail, well, you just you learn something in that process and then you just do better the next time. You know, people like Lewandowski appear to embrace that philosophy. But on the other hand, when you get to your average schmoes like me, then you have the reality of the situation sink in because these aren't just lines of code In software, these are technologies that could dramatically change someone's life in really horrible ways if something goes wrong. See, if I use an app, let's say I'm using, I don't know, a pizza delivery app, and let's say something screws up and my pizza is lost in the ether. Like that that order never really goes through and I'm sitting around waiting for pizza and I'm hungry. Well, that sucks, but I'm gonna live. I can order another pizza. But if an autonomous car messes up, someone could die. So failing big, failing often in the in the sense of autonomous cars in the real world is what I would argue an irresponsible approach. And yes, we learn more through our failures than we do through our successes. But again, when it comes to human lives, you can't be too cavalier about that. Now, this naturally leads into what will be the topic of the next episode of Tech Stuff, which is a broader, more philosophical discussion about autonomous cars and ethics, not to mention realistic versus unrealistic views of where we are with the technology and where we should be or where we need to be in order to have a a broad rollout, so to speak, of the tech. So in the next episode, I'm going to spend more time talking about those sort of big picture ideas. Everything from the different levels of autonomy to where we are, to various problems with some of these approaches. Even Waymo, which I would argue, despite the the alleged incidents that went unreported between 2011 and 2014, it appears to be the most responsible of the, the large projects I've read about, again, big picture view. Even Waymo, their approach has certain drawbacks that we'll talk about in the next episode. Things that uh, mean that it may work in most situations, but when you get into unusual situations, which happen all the time, uh, it doesn't work nearly as well. But that's what we'll talk about in our next episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff!, whether it's a huge topic like driverless cars that would require multiple episodes or something where you want a really focused episode about a specific technology or a person in tech, maybe there's someone you would like me to interview, let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or go to our website, that's techstuffpodcast.com. There you can find the different ways to contact me on social. I look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget to head over to tpublic.com slash techstuff and check out our merchandise. Every purchase you make goes to help the show. and We greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.